If you have elementary age kids, we would love for them to be a part. We have going on with our Vine Kids team. Um, they are welcome to follow Miss Cherry out that door there. We also have our fifth and sixth graders. If you're a fifth or sixth grader, and we would love for you to be a part, we have going on with that age group as well. They're going out that door, either of these doors. Perfecto. So if you're here with us for the very first time, let me tell you again how grateful we are that you're here. It is a privilege to have you with us. Welcome to the Vine Community Church. Uh, we are honored that you would give us your Sunday morning. Um, and so we are, are, are glad you're here. Hopefully you will find people that are nice to you and you'll want to come back. That is, that is what we would love. Um, we are actually in the middle of a, I say in the middle, we're in the very beginning of a study of the book of John. Uh, 23 weeks in, we have looked at every verse from chapter 1, verse 1, and we are stepping into, we're kind of in the middle of chapter 6. And for the past few weeks, we've been looking at two very important, very significant miracles that are coming on the heels of the most important chapter in the entire book of John. John's gospel is written, remember, for a very different purpose. He's not writing to tell the history of the life of Jesus. He's not writing so that we could know geography and stories and sort of some of the things that the other gospel accounts have. John is writing so that we may know that Jesus is God. That is his entire purpose in his book, is he wants us to see Jesus as the incarnation, that he is God's son, that he is God in the very flesh. And so everything that John does is pointing us to the deity of Christ. Well, chapter 5 is the most important chapter in the entire gospel because Jesus makes these really incredible claims about himself, about his relationship with the Father, and the nature of who he is, and he sets up the entire sort of doctrine of the Trinity in there by, by basically proclaiming his equality with or his oneness with God. And, and it's a really important chapter, and, and we spent like five weeks kind of really uh, moving through, uh, through it in very nuanced ways, looking at all the sort of theological implications. Well, coming on the heels of that are two really important miracles that are going to give evidence, further evidence, to the claims that Jesus had made in chapter 5. And those two miracles that we talked about the past two weeks are, are uh, very famous miracles, right? They're the G Jesus feeding the 5,000 and then Jesus walking on the water. And John has them very intentionally uh, to show us that Jesus' claims that he made about himself are very true, that not only does Jesus have authority over and power over things like fish and bread, but he has authority and power over the very forces of nature. He can walk on water and he can calm the wind. And therefore, the things that Jesus is saying about himself and his, his oneness with the Father are true. And so the miracles are giving evidence to the claims that Jesus had made about himself. And so it's a really important section. Well, we're, interestingly enough, we're in the same day as we've been for the past two weeks. So for three weeks, we're looking at really the same day or sort of day and night in the life of Christ. And, and two weeks ago, I kind of gave you a little bit of a rundown. I'm going to do it really quickly just so you can kind of feel the things that are going on this week or this day in the life of Jesus and the disciples. But it's been a very emotional one. Uh, they had learned that uh, Jesus' cousin, the proclaimer John the Baptist, the prophet, the one that several of Jesus' own disciples had followed, had uh, not only been imprisoned, but he had been brutally murdered at the, hair, at the hands of Herod Antipas, also that he could save his pride over a promise he made in front of some dinner guests. They beheaded him, uh, literally took his life uh, right there in front of everyone, brought his head out. It was a brutal and awful scene, and John's disciples were allowed to go and recover his body, and they immediately came and told Jesus what had happened. And as soon as Jesus learned, he wanted to withdraw with his disciples, right? Spend some time with just them. And, and so they withdraw to this mountainside, and they're sitting there, and as they're sitting there, they see this massive crowd coming. 
And this crowd wasn't just coming to like sit there and listen. They were bringing all of their sick. In fact, that text in Matthew tells us there were 5,000 men, which means probably more like 7,500 or 10,000 when you add in women and children that were with them. But they weren't just people. They were people with needs. They brought the sick and the broken to see Jesus. And Jesus in this sort of fully human, right, and fully God, but fully human, all the emotions that are going on there, having just learned about his cousin, sees this crowd, and it says that he has compassion on them, and he heals their sick. And so he spends the entire day with them, healing their sick and and loving these people. And when night came, right, night was on its way, it was coming, and Jesus incredibly decides that he is going to feed all of these people. And we talked about all the sort of interactions there with the disciples or whatnot. Um, But he has a a bunch of grass, a big open field, and he invites them all to sit down. And he takes five loaves of barley bread, which is like poor people bread, and two fish. And he feeds this crowd of five, six, seven, eight thousand people. Enough so that there are 12 baskets left over. Right? And everyone's amazed, and, 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 and it tells us that they wanted to seize Jesus and make him king. So Jesus sends the crowd on their way, and he withdraws to a mountainside, and he sends his disciples across the lake ahead of him. So the disciples get on a boat, the crowd's dismissed, and Jesus goes up on a mountainside where he just spends time with the Father from all those emotional events that have kind of played out during the day. About three or four in the morning, the disciples are out on the boat. The wind's coming up against it. They're three or four miles off. Uh, shore, and Jesus goes out to them walking on the water, three or four in the morning. And it says the disciples, when they saw Jesus, they were petrified, right? They were scared to death. They'd never seen anything like this. Here's this figure walking on the water in the middle of the kind of Middle Eastern night, and they are terrified. And Jesus immediately tells them, do not be afraid, it's I, right? And then last week, we jumped over to Matthew's account, right? Because Matthew records this incredible interaction that, that Jesus has with Peter, where Peter says, Lord, if if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says this one word, right, this one word invitation to come. Peter gets out of the boat against all those kind of common sense things that are going on and probably all the voices of everybody else in the boat saying you can't walk on water. And he gets out of the boat and he begins to walk towards Jesus. And it says that he looked and he saw the wind, right? He saw what is unseeable. He saw the wind and he began to sink. And immediately Jesus reaches down and he grabs his hand and he saves him right? Pulls him up and he says, why did you doubt? And they put him on the boat and the wind dies down. And when they reach the other side, Jesus continues to heal the sick uh, of the people that have come to meet them on the other side of the lake. Now I recap all that because we're going to pick up right in that exact moment. The day is not even over. Jesus had spent some time on the mountainside. He'd walked out on the water. It's been in the middle of the night. Now it's early in the morning. And the crowd that was dismissed from this side of the lake that had just been fed from these loaves of bread and fish Wants to, they want to see Jesus again. They want to see some more things. And so they're going to go around the lake, actually going to jump on some boats and cross the lake and meet him over there. And they're going to demand a few things from him, which I think really we all demand from God. So we're going to look at that. But I want you to understand this is still all this one giant emotional day in the life of Jesus and the disciples. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 6. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 22. And then we're going to go down through 30-something, 30 34 perhaps. So if you've got your Bible, flip over there. If you don't have one, there should be one around you. If you don't own one, please keep the one that's right there. Uh, we would love for you to have it. It's not real fancy, but it'll do. Um, and so we'd love for you to keep it. So uh, take that, mark it up, do whatever you want to with it. But let's pray and ask the Lord to open our hearts, and then we're going to dive, in, dive into this text. Lord, I thank you that your word is living and active. 
You tell us that it is sharper than any double-edged sword. You tell us that it penetrates even the dividing joints and marrow, soul, and spirit, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of a heart. God, an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. I believe that with all of my heart. I believe that your word is alive. I believe that you speak to us through it. I do not believe it is a series of suggestions, but instead, God, it is your very breath. God, you tell us that scripture is the theopunestos. It is the breath of God. Lord, it is literally breathed from you. Therefore, it is yours, and it is more than instructions. God, it is the very anchor on which our life is built, and we take our time in it very seriously. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach our hearts this morning through your word. Um, that you would instruct us, that you would open us to something new or something fresh or something we need to hear, that you would convict where we need to be convicted, empower where we need to be empowered. But more than anything, Lord, I ask that you would reveal yourself to us. We cannot discover you. We do not discover truth. We do not discover knowledge. God, you are the revealer of all things that are eternal. And so, God, teach our hearts this morning. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you. Just for the next few minutes as we dive through these passages, just ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. Take a moment, pray for someone beside you, uh, behind you, around you, even if you don't know their name, just pray that God would speak to them. We do this every Sunday. I encourage you to, to remember that this is not about you Sunday morning. We want to be a community that is committed to seeing other people encounter the Lord. And so just pray for somebody else. Pray that God would move in their heart. Lord, we love you. And we're grateful uh, for the opportunity to gather here. So teach our hearts. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So we're continuing on, right? Jesus has, has walked out on the water. The, he has calmed the disciples. He has saved Peter. He has placed Peter back on the boat. They immediately made it to the other side. And when they do, they're greeted with this crowd of people. And we're going to pick up in verse 22 and head down uh, through 34. It says, The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor disciples were there, they got into the boats and went ahead to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they ask him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. So they ask him, what miraculous sign will you do, will you give, that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert, as it's written, and he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it was my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. So what happens is, is Jesus dismisses this large crowd of thousands of people, and then he sends the disciples ahead of him, uh, 
across the lake towards the town of Capernaum. And if you remember from our previous studies, Capernaum is sort of the home base, if you will, of Jesus and the disciples. Uh, some of the disciples has relatives there, and so they would go out from Capernaum and return and go out and return. And so Jesus sends the disciples ahead of him, right? He prays on the mountain, and then he walks out to them in the middle of the night. And after that, they have that encounter. They end up on the other side of the lake where Matthew actually records that a crowd was waiting for him there. John tells us about this other group of people that were waiting around in the morning. They came back when the light was up, and they looked around, and, and they realized that Jesus and the disciples weren't here. And while they were all here, there was only one one boat. And they watched Jesus put the disciples in the boat and send them on their way. And then the crowd was dismissed. And then Jesus sort of stayed here or up on the mountain or whatever. And so they're looking for him and he's not there. And they realized that the boat is gone and Jesus is gone. And they want to know where he is, right? Because they had just seen these incredible things. And so about that time, some boats from Tiberias, which is just a little bit up the shore, they came probably fishing vessels that had been fishing at night. They come up and the crowd, or several of the crowd, I don't know how many, that John doesn't tell us, they get in these boats and they sail across the lake to Capernaum uh, and land there to try and find Jesus. And when they land there, they find Jesus, just like they thought they would at that little home-based town right on the sort of the, the coast there of that lake. And they find Jesus there, right? And so this crowd, just not even a day later, it's the very next morning, sails across the lake and they find Jesus. And when they get there, they look at him and they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? And they're not really asking Jesus when he got here. They're asking how he got there, right? Because that section before tells us that they were confused. They know that the boat left without Jesus. And there is no way that he could have walked all the way around the lake and made it. So Jesus, how or when did you get here? They're basically saying, what has gone on? Is this another miraculous sign? Did you do something else that's amazing here? And then Jesus completely ignores them, right? Which is what he does often. Just almost as if they're not even standing there asking that question. Rabbi, when did you get here? Rabbi, how did you get here? And Jesus says to them, I tell you the truth, right? You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. So he says, listen, you've come all the way over here looking for me, not because you saw me do something amazing, not because we had a miraculous sign, but because you loved the outcome of what I did. Because you ate, you were hungry, and I took those loaves of bread, and I broke them, and I gave thanks, and we passed them out, and you ate till you were full. You are looking for me because you liked what I did. You liked the outcome. Right? Completely unrelated to their, their question, Jesus knows their hearts that they are looking for Jesus, not because they wanted to be like, oh, hey, look, this is the guy that does miraculous things. They were like, this is the guy that did something that we really loved. He fed us, all of us, right? And there's going to be a really important connotation that we're going to tie into here with the Old Testament, but, but there's like, he fed us. And Jesus says, I know why you're looking for me, and it's not because I did something great some miraculous sign that you're like, wow, this is, this is God's son or this is the son of man, but because you liked what I did, right? So he said, you liked the outcome. It's why you came back, hoping I'd do something else that would sort of fill your appetite, if you will, both emotionally or spiritually or whatever. And so Jesus goes on. He says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you, and God the Father has placed his approval. He said, listen, You've come here looking because you loved what I gave you. The other side of the lake, I took those fish and I multiplied them. And you were there and I took the bread and I, I multiplied it. And you ate and you had your fill. And you came looking for something similar that would benefit you, right? That's why you're looking for me. 
not because of what I offer you, but because of what I gave you and you loved the outcome. But let me tell you something. Don't work for things that spoil. That bread that I gave you, it's going to spoil, right? It, it goes bad in a day or two. So now I don't want you to work coming and looking for me so that I can give you something that will spoil because what I'm offering you, right, will never spoil. He says, what I'm offering you is something much bigger upon which God himself has given his a seal of approval. The food that I give you, he says, will endure to eternal life and it will come from the Son of Man. So Jesus says, you've come looking for something physical that you want that fills you. But don't work for that, right? What I'm offering you is something much bigger, eternal life, food that never spoils, bread that never spoils, that God himself has placed his seal of approval on. Well, the crowd or that group of people right? Completely missed that point, right? I feel like there's there are two different people that are just talking over each other. And so they ask him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? So they basically say this to Jesus, what must we do to get this bread that never spoils? Like, tell us what we need to do that God is going to require us to do so that we can get this bread. That's what they're asking. They're saying, okay, well, we came because we liked the bread you gave us on the other side of the lake because it satisfied a need. So we came looking for a God who would satisfy our needs, for Jesus who would satisfy our needs. And you tell us that there's an opportunity to get bread that will never, ever, ever go bad, but for eternal life will be good. And they're thinking temporal and worldly. And Jesus, of course, speaking incredibly spiritually. And they say, what does God want me to do to get that bread? And we'll do it. In other words, what kind of religious, pious activities do we need to engage in so that God says, good work. Here is this eternal bread. That's what they're thinking. They're thinking, okay, if we can appease God, if we can work for God or work to please God, that he will give us this bread that Jesus is talking about, right? So they're saying, tell us what hoops we need to jump through religiously. We need to pray, go to synagogue, do whatever. What is the work that God requires us to do, and we will do it, right? That's what they're basically saying to Jesus, and so they're waiting for a list. They're waiting for Jesus to say, okay, here's the deal, right? No more rock and roll, right? Side hug girls only, right? Pay your tithe, do your things. That's what they're waiting for, right? This is what Jesus says. The work of God is this. So get ready. Get ready. Take your notes, right? Because this is how you are going to inherit this bread that never spoils. It is to believe in the one whom he has sent. So Jesus says, the work that God requires of you to get this eternal bread, which they're still not connecting with each other and what that is. Jesus is talking about eternal life, that he is the bread of heaven, which we'll talk about next week a lot. He says, in order to gain this, right, this eternal bread that will satisfy your soul for the rest of your life and eternity on, right, this is what God requires you. And they're like, we're willing to do it because we don't want to have to ever worry about food again. And since you just gave us a bunch of food and there's an Old Testament connection that we'll make in just a second where God gave Israelites a bunch of food, we want that and that food never spoils. Like we're hoping for that. So here he goes. I will do whatever religious things I need to do. And Jesus says, believe in the one that God has sent. In other words, believe in me. Right? Believe in me. That is what God requires. And we'll talk about more of that in just a minute. So they ask him, okay, well, what miraculous signs are you going to do or give us so that we might believe you, right? What will you do? Our fathers, our forefathers ate manna in the desert, 
right? And it's written that he has given them bread from heaven. So they said, okay, if, if, if what you're saying is even remotely true and we can have access to eternal bread, right, then we want to do the things that God's calling us to do, to do that. And you say it's just to believe in the one that he sent. Well, if that's the case, and maybe you're the one that he sent, right? Let me ask you something. What are you going to do for us? Like we saw that miracle over there, right? That was pretty cool. But that doesn't mean we're going to believe in you because you did something one time. What will you do for us? And then they jump to the Old Testament and they say, our forefathers ate bread that was given by God called manna. And they did it every single day. You've got to do something better than that. That's basically what they're saying to him. They're saying you've got to be better than that. Now, if you remember your Old Testament, right, when Israel was in between the, the leaving of Egypt and entering in the promised land, and they were in the desert for 40 years, they ran into a whole bunch of hardships. And one of those hardships was the scarcity of food. And so God, to alleviate this problem, right, provided manna from heaven every morning. He would provide food. And there were very specific instructions about how the Israelites would go out and gather that food, and they couldn't store it, it would rot. And they had to trust and believe that God would provide for them every single day, right? That he would be their daily bread, right? Which is part of our Lord's prayer and all that because God would provide manna from heaven. The word manna actually is a Hebrew word that means what is it? Because it didn't look like bread. And they went to Moses when it came the first time and they said, what is this? And Moses said, it's bread from God that he has given to you as a gift to sustain you, right? And so they took it and they ate it. And these guys look at Jesus and they say, all right, so what are you going to do for us? We're talking bread here. Let me tell you what went on with our forefathers. Moses, right, provided bread for an entire nation for 40 years. You broke bread once for 5,000. You're going to have to do better than that. And that's really, it sounds harsh, but that's really what they're saying. They're saying, what will you show us for us to really believe that you are who you say you are? In other words, dance for me right? Do some magic tricks. What will you do so that we will believe, right? And they gave him an example. 40 years of bread every day. That's a big deal, right? And this is what Jesus says to him. He says, I tell you the truth. It was not Moses, right? So you got your facts wrong. It wasn't Moses that gave the bread, right? It was, a, it was my father, right? It was God the Father, and who gives bread from heaven. He uses the present tense. He says, it was not Moses who did this, but God. And God gives. He didn't just give in the past, but he gives now bread from heaven. And that bread, right, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. God gives bread, eternal bread, and that bread is standing in your presence, right? He has come to give life to the world. That bread is a person that God has given, right? And so they say, sir, from now on, we'll take that. Because what they're thinking is, we want that eternal bread and not that cruddy stuff you gave us on the other side of the lake that came from barley. Because they're still missing each other completely. Jesus is talking about himself as the very gift of God, the bread that God never ceased providing for his people, but he came to save them and rescue them through Jesus Christ, who will be the bread of life. And we'll explore this next week. And the people say, what do we have to do to make sure that we get that so that we don't have to find our own food anymore? But more so, what are you going to do for us so that we believe even the words that are coming out of your mouth? Because that little miracle over there, while very cool, well, it doesn't compare to what we've heard can be done. So do something for us. 
started thinking about this text, and we're going to explore this over the next few weeks, this idea of Jesus being the bread of life and what God provides and what that really means. But I really started thinking about it in terms of questions that I often come to the Lord with or that I have to deal with in my own life. And I think they're pretty relevant, and I think it's what these, I don't know if it's a crowd or these people that came on a boat. It sort of sounds like it's a smaller group of people that are just sort of kind of confronting Jesus, saying, what really are you going to do? And it's a series of questions that I think we should ask ourselves. And the first one really is, what are you working for? Right now, I was asking myself this question this week, like, Trev, what are you, me personally, what am I working for? Because when Jesus has that first interaction with the crowd, right, they come across, or that little group comes across, and they find Jesus, and they say, Rabbi, where, when did you get here? Or or how did you, you get here? And Jesus says, look, you're not looking for me, because I I did something amazing and you want to know me. You're looking for me because you loved what I gave you and you want that again. And he says, work for things that don't spoil, right? And I started asking myself, what am I really working for? And I'm not just talking about vocationally, but the things that occupy our lives, the things that we spend time doing, right? Jesus is telling the crowd, like, you came all the way over here to look for something that's going to spoil, You're spending all your time trying to confront me on things that are going to disappear because you liked the outcome of what it was. He says, but what I offer you is eternal. It lasts forever, right? What are you working for? What are you searching for? Are you searching for something that will just satisfy us in the temporary? And I think a lot of our lives are consumed with that, right? We want to search for the things that God gives, but they're so temporary, the ones that we're actually pursuing, right? And we've defined them ourselves. So I'm going to work hard for financial success, whatever that means, and whoever defines that for you. I'm going to work hard for happiness, whatever that means, and whoever defines that for you. And I'm going to spend my life in pursuit of those things to put food on the table or gas in the car or money in the account. Also, I can get to the end of my life and say what? I did it? What did you do? What did our lives amount to? What are we doing that lasts for eternal significance? What are we actually working for? And not just vocationally, but with our time and energy and the things that we do and how we spend our time. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We're talking about Jesus loving people and making people his priority and how Jesus was always about things of eternal nature. He was not concerned with feeding 5,000 people and with the bread that these guys wanted. He turned the conversation back to something eternal, and he says, don't spend your life working for what will fail, what will spoil, what will go away, right? Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures for eternal life, which God will give you. Spend your life working for what will matter eternally. This is what Jesus is saying to this group. You came all the way over here looking for something that you thought you wanted, but spend your life working in pursuit of something that matters for eternity. When you think about the daily scope of your life and the things that you do and the things that you're engaged in and how you spend your time, how does it fall on the spectrum of temporary and worldly and things of eternal significance, right? How much of your life is spent chasing things that ultimately don't really matter? or amount to much, or you can take with you, or that are just really temporary, whether they're material things, or surface relationships, or whatever, right? Time that's spent chasing things to try and feed you when you're just going to be hungry again tomorrow. And Jesus says we should be working for things that don't spoil eternal significance, things that matter in the scope 
of things. How many years have you wasted of your life holding a grudge against a family member or somebody? How many years of your life have you spent not forgiving someone, holding on to something so temporary when there's such an eternal, bigger scope or picture over here? Right? See, we spend so much of our time working for things that are just going to spoil. And you know what? Tomorrow, we're just going to be hungry again. Anybody that's ever had any kind of money at all, whether it's been $1,000 in a checking account or $100,000, it's never really enough. We always want and long for more. Even when we hit that number, it's not like we finally got it and life is good. It's, I need to put a little bit more away or do a little bit more of this. And we're never really satisfied with anything. Even when we get a new vehicle, a new car, a new TV, it's always just a matter of months before we need whatever is next, Right? Whether that's a phone in your pocket that's still a five, iPhone 5 that we're longing for whatever, it's never enough because we spend our life chasing things that just don't matter. They spoil. And I started asking myself this question, what am I working for? Like really, really, what am I working for? Right? The second question really comes on the heels of that and it really is who are you working for? So Jesus tells this to the, this crowd of people, this gathering of people, and they say, well, what do we have to do to please this God so that he will give us what we want, is essentially what they're saying. What do we have to do to do the work that God requires of us? And they're not asking like the Apostle Paul says in Colossians where he says, whatever you do, work at it for all, work with all your heart is working for the Lord and not for men. They're not really asking, how can we work and serve the Lord? That's not what they're asking. They're asking, in order to get this bread that you talk about that's better than the bread we had on the other side of the lake, what are the religious activities that we have to do? In other words, God, how can we perform for you so that you will give us these promises? And a lot of us, this is how we treat our relationship with God. We bargain with God all the time. God, what do I have to do for you to return a blessing on me somehow? Or God, what do I have to engage in for you to remove this thing from my life? What are the religious duties, activities, things that I have to do so that I can have whatever that return is? Now, we would never say it in those words, and we never use those things out loud, but it's how a lot of us deal with the Lord. We bargain with God. God, I'll start praying again. I'm going to start doing, I'm, I'm going to get into a devotion again. God, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to start going back to church. I'm going to do these things because I need a tangible return from you in this area of my life because I need that job or I need this or I want this. And so I'm going to engage in these religious activities so that you will give me a return. And when we do that, we have to ask ourselves, who are we working for? Are we trying to work to perform for God so that God would say, hey, good work, man. I'm going I'm to give you a little something, a little pat on the back little benefit here, right? Are we working to please other people? I want other people to see what my life looks like. I want them to see what I'm doing. And so the things that I work for are designed to provide some kind of resemblance of a life that looks good to them. Or maybe it's just for you. Like I'm going to work for me so that I can get whatever that outcome is. And I found that question to be really fascinating because, man, whether we like to admit it or not, we we try and perform for the Lord. Like we want God to see that we are trying. I mean, even in my own prayer life, I'm, I'm like, God, you know, it's been a really busy week and I've, I've spent this time with this person. I did this and God, I've been trying really hard, like as if God has not seen any part of my life, right? And then I set him up for the, that's why, Lord, I just haven't had a chance to do whatever or I just really need you here. 
So a little something from me, a little something from you. Everybody's good, right? We're gravy. That's what they're saying. They're saying, what do we have to do to get God to give us what we want? Our churches are filled with people that have this relationship with the Lord. And the tragedy is, much of what we spew from our pulpits feeds this broken theology that says, if you do enough things, God will reward you. If you're faithful enough, good enough, do the right religious, pious activities, God will return a blessing. It's a prosperity gospel, and it's a lie. It's a lie. God is not waiting for us to dance around and do a bunch of things so that he says, hey, good work, right? Look what you did for me. So when they ask Jesus, what are the works or the duties that we have to do for God? Jesus says what? Believe in the one that he sent. Do you know what God requires of you to have all the benefits of eternal life that not just happen when you die, but that begin in this very breath of life because eternal life begins right now? Do you know what he requires of you? To believe in Jesus. That's it. There's not a list of activities. Believe in Jesus and, right? Or believe in Jesus and do this. Go here, have this, purge this, whatever it is. Believe in the one that he has sent. That means that no amount of your performing or dancing or doing is going to earn you any more favor or merit with God. It's just not. God, right, just says, believe in the one that I sent. Why? Because he is the redeemer. It means that we don't have to clean up this mess that we've made with our lives. We don't have to scrub it up and turn those walls into whitewashed things that look good on the outside and show up before the Lord and say, look, I put on my best. I'm doing the best I can. Your best will never be good enough. And it's why God sent his son, Jesus, where the only requirement is to just believe that he is who he says he is. You know what an eye-opener that would be for a group of religious people that whose entire lives have been driven by performance? You want to know what God requires of you? You have all the eternal benefits of eternal life and abundant life here on earth? Believe in Jesus. When we begin at that place, everything changes because true belief in Jesus turns our life upside down. It turns everything that we are on its head because it means we can do none of it on our own. Nothing. We have to have Jesus as our Savior. So the questions that are laying out there is, what are we working for and who are we working for? And then the final one that's at the end, and I'll kind of wrap it up with this, is really what is it that you're really looking for? And, and, and Jesus kind of poses this question to this group of people, and they kind of go back and forth a little bit. But, but Jesus basically looks at them, right? And, and they say, all right, we hear you tell us that we have to believe in the one that God sent. I hear that. What are you going to do for us? Like, what are you going to show us? Give me some more signs, right? Show me some more miracles. Do some more magic tricks. Do some more things so that I can truly believe that you are Jesus. And I started thinking in my own life, man. I mean, how many times I have come before the Lord and asked the Lord to do something for me so that I could truly trust him. God, I need you to show yourself to me. God, I need you to to do this, to cleanse this, to fix this, to make this. God, I need you to show up in a very tangible way. I need you to do something for me so that I can put my full hope and trust in you. In other words, God, I am looking for you to do so that I can finally trust. 
And the irony, of course, of all that is that God has done this incredible, amazing things, not only in my life, but just to the person of Jesus Christ, and it's not enough for me. All the ways that he has saved and redeemed, all the ways that he has reached into my life, all the evidence that he has shown me time and time again, I still stand here at 39, four times over, and say, God, show me so that I can truly trust you. What will you do for me? And I don't say it like that, but my heart betrays me. God, I want to trust you. God, I want to trust you, so show me where you're doing things. And Jesus is basically looks at these guys and goes, I don't have to show you anything, right? What I am and what God has done is all the evidence you'll ever need. The fact that I stand in your presence as the bread of life is enough. I want my heart at the end of the day to not be searching and looking for ways that God will do more things so that I can truly believe him. At the end of the day, I just want to look at what's in front of me. That Jesus, the bread of life, stands literally in front of us, offering every, every redemptive, eternal promise that if we just believe in him, we'll be saved. We don't have to look past him. We don't have to look through him. We don't have to look around him and see what he's done. He stands in our presence, and yet we're looking for something else. We're searching for truth. We're searching for answers. We're searching for morality. We read books of this and that, trying to find some kind of answers for all the questions that we have that don't line up. And the answer, the God of the universe, the bread of life, stands in our very presence and says, what are you looking for? Because here I am, and I am the answer, and I am enough. And I want you to wrestle with those questions this week as we really ask ourselves, God, what is it that I'm working for? Who am I working for? And what am I really looking for? And why in my heart are you not enough for me? Because Jesus is enough. He's more than enough. And all that God requires of you is that you would believe in the one that he has sent. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity just to gather and open your word. I thank you, Father, that Scripture is very convicting at times in my own heart. And, um, Lord, I find myself working for the wrong things. I find myself working for the wrong people. Most of the time, it's myself. I find myself looking for things that don't matter. I find myself asking you to do things, God, that I don't need. I find myself asking, God, for ways to trust you when you have given me a thousand times over all the evidence I could ever long for, that you have rescued my heart, And God, I confess that there are times in my life where I look at you and I just say, you are not enough. And I confess that, God, because you are more than enough. You are everything. God, I pray that as we sit here and as we close our time in worship, you would convict our hearts. That we'd be people that are about things of eternal nature. Things that matter, not things that spoil and fade. And that, that God, what we'd work for is not to jump through religious hoops so that somehow we can please please or perform for you but that we would stand in your presence and realize that all you ask for us is to believe in you. Not to clean up this mess or hide all our past mistakes or whatever, but just to believe in you. And to quit looking, looking for answers in other places and looking for all the things that we wish we knew and searching the depths of the universe to try and satisfy our soul when the answer is standing in front of us. Just as you stood in the face of that crowd, you are the bread of life. You are all that we need to sustain 
and live and breathe from today until the end of time. And God, I'm grateful that you don't require us to jump through religious hoops. I would never make it. And I'm grateful that you rescued me and you rescued us in the middle of our deepest despair and did for us what we could never do for ourselves through the person of Jesus.